Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee and this is the Autosport Podcast. It's Sunday the 11th of July, and today, one of our special podcasts that's a tie-in to this week's Autosport Magazine edition. I'm here to introduce it, and before I do, a reminder that the current sponsor of the Autosport Podcast, Beer52, has got your back. They will ship you the world's finest craft beers, and whether you're commiserating the England result or looking forward to a cold one as you sit on the sofa and watch Silverstone at the weekend... I've got a special offer code for you to ensure that you get your first case of beers from Beer52 at a special price with an Autosport podcast code. So stick around, I'll give you those details very soon. But first of all, getting on to the show today, it's all about one man, and that is Pedro Rodriguez. He was killed 50 years ago. Today is the anniversary when Mexico was robbed of its brightest motor racing talent. He was a master at the Porsche 917 and had been one of the world's top drivers, widely respected for his wet weather ability and also his versatility across both Formula One and sports cars. So let's get the guys on to discuss his talent and career. From Autosport and Motorsport.com, it's Tom Howard, and he's joined by our chief editor, Kevin Turner. So Kevin, let's start by talking about Pedro Rodriguez and what sort of a guy was he and why is he still remembered today as one of the greats that Mexico has ever produced? I would argue that he is still the, the, the greatest Mexican driver, um, which is no criticism of Sergio Perez, who is probably the most, yeah, obviously he's the modern the Mexican driver that, that, you know, that leads the way and, and, and I think probably will end up winning more than the two Grand Prix that he's won so far and that Pedro did. Um, but as a, as a as a man, Rodriguez was um, he was quite um, he was quite a quiet character. He, he was um, he kind of got into most with his younger brother Ricardo, who was much more of an extrovert kind of. He was the one that grabbed the attention. Um, they came from a very wealthy family, powerful family, so they had some pretty cool kit. Uh, 
Um, Ricardo had a Porsche 550 RS when he was about 15. I mean, they had some pretty pretty tasty equipment um, to get on with. Um, but I think one of the reasons that that um, Pedro in particular is well remembered is his sort of doggy determination, and we'll come to some of the races later on. But he was very pleasant to work with out the car. I mean, Simon Taylor, who was the autosport editor at the time, um, and who covered a lot of Pedro Pedro's races. I, um, I spoke to him while I was putting this piece together. Um, for the magazine and the website and he said you know he was one of the most different characters from what he was like outside the car to inside the car outside the car he was you know quite a gentle guy he didn't tend to socialize with the other drivers he could speak pretty good English but he just he didn't really want to get involved in that he was happy to do his own thing um, but in the car he was an absolute tiger and a fighter you know he could have delays in in races and he would just charge back into contention fantastic in the wet um, I think he was just a great driver to watch, you know, sort of never say die attitude, kind of an old school driver, really kind of, um, I don't think he was a complete driver in the modern sense of the word, but I think he was a, he was a great one. Do you think he was perhaps one of the best drivers not to have won the F1 world title? Oh, that's an interesting one. Yeah, I think probably, I mean, he's, he doesn't normally come up um, in that sort of conversation, um, but he probably should a bit more. I mean, Chris Amon, uh, is normally number one or number two on the uh, best F1 drivers never to win the World Championship. And they were contemporaries, and I don't think Pedro gave anything away to Chris. They actually shared uh, they shared a car at Ferrari um, uh, a couple of times, and, and they were, I mean, as you would imagine, a very strong lineup. So, I mean, he would be in your list of greatest sports car drivers, I think. I think it took him longer to get, uh, get really the... the become a front runner in single seaters for two main reasons one was all his background racing in his early days or almost all was in saloons or sports cars you know you had a you had a corvette he raced saloons including a volvo um he didn't do an awful lot of single seater racing he did a little bit of formula v um so he probably was more comfortable in a sports car to start with and then when he did get into single seaters for quite a while he didn't have the best kit um you know he had one-off races sort of between 63 and 66 then he joined Cooper for 1967 and then he had some fairly mediocre BRMs and really it wasn't until 1970 when Tony Southgate um, designed the P153 uh, that suddenly he had a a competitive Formula One car so uh, yeah I think he probably should be in that uh, in that debate something funny enough I didn't uh, despite the fact I love a good list um, that's actually not not something I considered while I was writing it but yeah I think he he should he should be considered I, I think and I put this to Simon Taylor as well, is that by 1970-71, you would probably, you'd have had Jackie Stewart and Jochen Rint until he was killed at Monza as your sort of top two in F1. And then I think battling just behind them is probably Jackie Ickes and, and, and Pedro. I think they are the top top four. So if you like, after Rint's death, he'd almost be an equivalent to a sort of a Charles Leclerc position, perhaps behind Lewis and Max. That's that's it's a bit, bit, bit of a stretch, perhaps. But it, yeah, I think he was absolutely one of the top drivers of his era. It would have been interesting to see just what he could have done maybe in one of the best bits of kit on the grid in the F- in F1, wouldn't it? It would have been quite quite interesting to see where he would have stacked. Yes, I think he I mean I think he would have won more races in the P one sixty. Um I was fortunate enough to be able to speak to Tony Southgate about this as well and um we got on to inevitably talking about the, the two BRMs that he produced for that. Um and he said that nineteen seventy one's really peak peak BRM at the end if you like before the the, the sort of final decline happened um, the chassis was good he'd neatened up the car 
he'd fixed the, the the engine like the engine had an oil issue which he'd sorted out for 71 the engines were in reasonably good nick then roughly on a par with the Cosworth DFV and you know as we after Pedro was killed you know Joe Siffert who was his teammate in the BRM team went on to win uh, the Austrian Grand Prix uh, Peter Gethin won the Italian Grand Prix and Pedro did start the year as number one so I think had he not been killed at the, at the Norris Ring in a fairly minor inter-series race in a privateer Ferrari, he probably would have won more Grand Prix. I would have been surprised if he'd won a world championship against first Jackie Stewart and then later on Nicky Lauda. I think that they were just more complete drivers. Um, but I don't think that's any that's no criticism of, of, of Pedro, really. As I say, he was kind of an old-school driver. So I think he'd have won more races, but perhaps not a world championship. You mentioned there, obviously, that that is sort of the reason why we're doing this podcast. Is this, tragically, his life was cut short at the 1971 uh, Norris Ring Inter-Series race, as you say, which is a race he didn't really need to to have done. But he was uh, a quote in your piece, which I really liked, was the you know racing is my life, and a weekend without a race is a lost weekend. And that, I guess that sums up uh, Pedro. Yeah, absolutely. He was always pushing for um, to, to to do more races, so he. Early in his um, early in his career, he was Luigi Chinetti at the North American Racing Team sourced a lot of his cars, either ran them or, or helped him get hold of them because obviously his links with Ferrari. He was a big Ferrari man in his early part of his career, so it's sort of ironic that he's best known for beating Ferrari in Porsches. Um, and he always wanted a Ferrari drive, um, but Enzo, although he had a good relationship with Enzo, Enzo tended to offer him only endurance racing. He wanted to do enduros and um, and F1. But yeah, he. I think he pushed BRM to. You know, he wanted to do Can-Am races. He would. Yeah, he turned up in in all sorts of events. Um, and he'd driven uh, driven a 908, which we'll get to later in the previous year's Norris Ring race. And he basically said, "Yeah, if you want me to come back, I want." He wanted to win as well. So I want a more competitive car. Um, and he had one. Um, it wasn't the fastest car in the field. He was up against. You know, Interseries was kind of effectively the European version of Can-Am. It wasn't such a high level, but I mean, you're talking about. 7.6 litre marches, six to seven litre Lolas, and he had a five litre Ferrari. Uh, and he qualified on the front row and was leading when, when he crashed. A little bit of a debate about what caused the accident. Um, some people feel it was a bat marker, um, but that was it was difficult to confirm. There, there, is, there are photos of it, which aren't, aren't very nice, uh, but it, yeah, you can't really tell what's, what's caused it. But um, uh, yeah, uh, BRM and, and, and the, the, John, you know, the JW Automotive Engineering team sort of knew about it but didn't stop him going um, and obviously it was a decision that, that both parties regretted. So you, you mentioned obviously earlier there that he's uh, he, you know, he's quite an interesting character, he was very approachable but also didn't socialise with his, his contemporaries. Um, he was also a, you know, a great driver but sort of just sum up why you think why do you think he sort of clicked because that's quite an unusual sort of combination to be approachable but yet you know, quite mystique about him as well, you know? Well, I, I think it's probably something to do with his background. You know, as I say, his family was um, very uh, wealthy and, and well-connected in Mexico, like to the, right up to the top of government. Um, his father was able to do lots of business deals and, you know, was, was very well-connected. And obviously that meant that both Pedro and Ricardo had to go to lots of functions. So they were very used to, I think, very comfortable with mixing with the top end of society, if you like. But also, you know... They did their own, a lot of their own work. I mean, Pedro wasn't known as a technical driver, but he helped, you know, he, he, he would sort of work with, you know, talk to the mechanics and stuff. So he's quite down to earth as well. So he had this kind of nice mix. Um, I mean, there was a suggestion in the, the Brothers Rodriguez book, uh, which was produced 
in Mexico as you know because they're still such heroes uh, in Mexican motorsport. It's a fantastic um, book. I'd, I'd I'd recommend anyone taking a taking a look at it. Um, but that the suggestion there is that Pedro didn't really want to give anything away to his rivals by getting into the yeah he kind of liked having that slight mystique. Um, but he also had a sense of humour. You know, there are stories, um, you know, Brian Redman and others have told stories about him. He really liked very hot chilli, very hot food, spicy <laughs> food. And, um, you know, sometimes people would try it and uh, and they'd be sweating profusely. And he used to think that that was quite amusing. And he, he wasn't a great drinker himself, but he was quite happy to top up your glass if you were drinking. So he obviously had quite a good sort of little... Um, sense of humour, but wasn't wouldn't be sort of on the tables himself, um, shouting and yelling and being the soul of the party. But inside the car, it was you know very from very early on. I think the the normally when you come from a, a domestic racing scene, sometimes it's difficult to have the level of competition that you would that you'd want before you go into international motorsport. But Pedro had Ricardo pushing him all the time, so they had that kind of nice rivalry as they were growing up. You know, you, who do you want to? Yeah, you, who do you want to beat? You want to beat your brother, don't you? You always got to beat your beat your brother. Um, and and then of course because they were so well connected, they got into international motorsport very young. I mean, Ricardo actually was refused starting Le Mans one year because the AC, even the ACO back in the fifties was like, no, that that really is taking the Mickey. But I mean, Pedro was Pedro was driving big sports cars from from his late teens, so I think he had. You know, he 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 developed the skills in the car as a fighter early on. So you mentioned Ricardo there. Obviously, he, his life was also tragically cut short. But he's still, I believe, the youngest ever Ferrari F1 driver. Still, I think he probably would be. Yeah, he qualified. I mean, so uh, early on in their career, and there's a, there's quite a, an interesting debate um, to be had about which one of them is the better. I mean, the sort of received wisdom is that Ricardo is more talented, and he would have achieved more had he carried on, as you say, he was. He was killed in practice of the 1962 Mexican Grand Prix. Pedro was one of the first people on the scene. They were, you know, they were very close. So, yeah, pretty horrific time for for the family. But yeah, he qualified on the front row at Monza for his, his World Championship F1 debut. I, I think in Pedro's defence, I'm not entirely convinced that Ricardo was definitely the better driver. I think he was more of an extra um, extrovert and more out there, a bit more wild, perhaps. There's even a suggestion in the in the book that I mentioned that Pedro may be when they shared a car, because in endurance racing they often shared a car, they were very happy doing that. Pedro would perhaps not drive quite so flat out in practice because he didn't see the need. Yeah, you know, he knew that if he went quicker, Ricardo would just try and go quicker, and they'd either end up risking the car or or having an accident. Now, uh, that does tally with what Tony Southgate told me that Pedro didn't really care about practice. He was like, as long as the car's roughly in the ballpark, he said if they qualified near the front, they knew the car was good. Um, yeah, because he he never really bothered too much with practice. Um, so yeah, so I think they were both both great talents, and I think probably Pedro evolved as a driver in international motorsport after Ricardo was killed. So um, yeah, definitely worthy of his of his place in the yeah in the in the in the list of of great drivers that that we mentioned. Let's talk about Pedro's sort of strengths and weaknesses. Obviously, we've covered a little bit of it there, but he was an absolute master in the wet. Uh, also, very sympathetic on his machinery as well, which is quite an interesting combination to be fast, but yet also kind to the machinery. So um, just sort of talk us through what you think made him the driver that he was. Well, I think part of it was um, his style. So he's just described in various accounts as having this fingertip style, very soft, you know, kind of, and I think that, that probably helped him maintain momentum in the wet as well. 
um, you know, he had a very uh, it was finesse basically, if you like, had a very real good uh, sensitivity to it. I mean, I, I'm not a believer in you know your, your natural driving ability. I don't think you're born to uh, a, you know, a great racing driver or anything else really, but you can be born with certain attributes. I think he had very good balance. He was very fit. He had incredible stamina. He did lots of um, not not exercise in the way that we would talk about it for modern drivers now, but he did lots of sporting type things in Mexico. So he was very fit. You know, he could drive. I mean, John Wise said that he felt he could drive flat out almost indefinitely, it seemed, um, if he needed to. So, um, yeah, I think he had an incredible feel. He was very brave. I don't think he had any. Yeah, he was particularly good on, on high-speed circuits. The old spa, he was incredible. Um, yeah, him and Jackie Oliver won the race there with pit stops and, fu- and refueling at an average speed of 155 miles an hour in 1971 which is a bit quicker than, than the contemporary F1 cars. Really quite mind-boggling. Um, so, yeah, so incredibly in the wet, that was definitely a strength. I think he was a real... He was, he was good at wheel-to-wheel. Um, I think he was sort of hard but fair. There were a few clashes with people, but um, particularly Joe Siffert, but you kind of get the impression of the accountant so that was more that was more Siffert being the aggressor, trying to stamp his authority on this rather quick teammate. Um, I think the, probably the weaknesses would be... The technical side, um, you know, uh, it, it does sound like he probably wouldn't be the guy you'd put in the car to develop it. I mean, Leo Kinnanen, who he shared with in 1970, was quite frustrated by the setup on the Narman 7, felt that it could have been better and they would both have driven better. But the stories you get about Pedro, really, that he just adapted. It was, yeah, the car's like this, yeah, a few tweaks here and there, and he just drove around the problem, which if you're, if you're a test engineer or develop, designer, is quite frustrating um, on the other hand, you do know that if you make the car better, he'll just go faster because he, he, he will be at the limit of the car. So it, you could make it work and certainly Tony, Tony Southgate enjoyed working with him. Um, but yeah, I don't think he's not the sort that would have been, you know, he wasn't a Jackie Stewart sort who would have been sat down with Kent or going, no, we need a longer fourth gear to get across the line first at, at Monza in 69. You know, I don't think he was that sort of driver. He'd be just give me the car and I'll go and drive it faster than anyone else. And one, one little... Uh bit of information that I did like about uh, Pedro was a bit of an anglophile and, uh, and used to wear a deer stalk and, uh, that, that sounds fantastic and, and probably not enough of that goes on today yeah and he drove uh, he drove a Bentley had a, a, a big old Bentley he used to drive around the place yeah he he, he, he appeared to only had a he had a I mean the, the one part of his life that perhaps wouldn't look so good from a modern context is his is his, his string of girlfriends while also married he had a wife in Mexico and then a, a, a long-term girlfriend who was British uh, in Europe and, and also, I mean, I think that's probably more standard in those days, especially for racing drivers. So, um, but yeah, so he had a deer stalker, which partly obviously there's the British thing. Also, he, he apparently argued that, well, it, it, it kept his head warm when he was at a cold wintry race somewhere. So he didn't get head colds, which, which may well have been true. Um, but uh, yeah, so he had a, just a very unusual character. Is anyone else really like him? Um, you know, Southgate, sort of described him as a sort of a, you know, he had this mystique around him. Um, but but, but I, I must admit, he's one of those drivers. I've not really been able to find any references or anyone that I've spoken to that has a bad word to say about him. I think, you know, he was just not nice guy out of, uh, nice guy out of the car, but then incredibly, you know, uh, hard but fair in it. Well, just time for a quick break and to tell you about our sponsor of the podcast at the moment, and it's our friends at Beer 52. So whether you are commiserating the England results 
you are following the football or you're looking forward to watching Formula One at the weekend at Silverstone with a cold beer in your hand while you sit on the sofa, you can do that with Beer 52 and a special listener offer that you just can't say no to. A free case of eight craft beers from Beer 52 waiting at the end of our offer code. It's beer 52 com forward slash and then put autosport beer52.com slash autosport i've done it myself enjoying the croatian beers this month and very nice all you have to do all i had to do all you have to do is cover the postage of five pounds and 95 pence so what are you waiting for and right now actually uh, beer 52 are offering you two extra beers completely for free that's 10 free beers in your first case each month you get sent a case of beer to widen your palate to enjoy from around the world from a different theme if you like so you can enjoy a free magazine in that as well and a snack too if you don't like the dark beer you can always choose the light option it's so convenient because it just turns up at your door and we're all doing deliveries at the moment aren't we so claim now and get your two free beers extra go to beer52.com slash Autosport, it's our special offer code. You only pay $5.95 for postage and you can do all of it right now. While you listen, what are you waiting for? Yeah, should, should we move on to the top 10 drives? Um, yes, uh, please a, do. Always part of the list, so this is always good, good fun. Um, but yeah, the, the guy, uh, Pedro, obviously an incredible, incredible driver, some amazing drives which you, you just can't believe actually happened. But uh, anyway... To start off with, we go with number 10, which ironically is his, his first F1 win. So if that's your uh, number 10, the, the list is going to be quite special. So uh, talk us through uh, number 10, which is the 1967 South African Grand Prix. Yeah, so as I said earlier, this was his first full season, really, 67. This is round one. <laughs> um, and he's got the, the Cooper Maserati, which was... I mean, no F1 teams really were ready for the three-litre regulations in 66. And it's, you know, in those days, the South African Grand Prix was in January. So they, they were really still in 66 kit. Um, but, you know, he, he, he qualified well. He was battling sort of in third or f- third fourth with um, Jim Clark and Jack Brabham early on. Um, but then he, I mean, they, the Cooper wasn't the fastest car, but it was, it was, it was usually reasonably solid. Jochen was his teammate who charged forward and then fell off. Um, and Pedro started to lose gears, uh, lost a couple of gears, but he just kept going. And this is one of the reasons why I picked it really. It's indicative of his sort of never say die. I'm just going to keep going and do what I can attitude. And on this occasion, he was fortunate. Yeah, the quicker cars fell out. Yeah, in the closing stages, he was running second to John Love's Privateer Cooper, which would have been a—it's a fantastic story in itself. It's probably what the race is more famous for. But the Cooper, his Cooper, didn't have enough fuel um, to make it to the end, so he had to make a, a splash and dash that put Pedro in the lead. Pedro had been shown boards by Cooper that they, he needed to back off and you know, and, and save fuel. So it's another example of him looking after the kit. Really, you know, you've got two gears missing, you're running out of fuel, and he just makes sure he gets to the end. Um, so yes, it was one that he was lucky to win because um, yeah, because other people had problems. But I think it really shows his his spirit really, and and he, of course he was still very inexperienced in Formula One at the time. I guess if you were sort of to compare this to a modern day, it's almost a bit like uh, when Schumacher lost gears at ninety five at the Spanish Grand Prix and oh ninety four yeah ninety four Spain ninety four sorry no ninety four Spain where you know if you it's incredible that these drivers just think yeah just just carry on we'll be fine. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, Roy Salvadori, who was the uh, obviously former racing driver and team manager at Cooper at the time, was I think he warmed to Pedro because I think he found quite 
it quite awkward working with Jochen Rinner, who obviously was a future champion. Um, yeah, let's not forget. But he, he was a bit more, um, perhaps temperamental is the word, at that stage in his career, and a bit harder on the machinery. And I think Salvador, he quite appreciated having having Pedro, who, would, who wouldn't really complain, and just got on with it and hauled whatever, whatever, whatever state the kit was in, he would do his best. I mean, there's a story, actually, in, at BRM, they, uh, in, in um, I think the start of 1970, they had hub failures. And um, Jackie Oliver had a hub failure early on in the Spanish Grand Prix. And the team went, we, we need to pull Pedro in. And they called Pedro in. And, uh, and, and he went, what are you doing? He wouldn't come in to start with. And then he finally came in. And then he said, what, what, what are you doing? Oh, we've had this hub failure with a joint. He said, oh, don't worry about that. I've had plenty of hub failures before. Let me get on with it. Um, so, uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, um, what, what, what a race but- to win, though, is it? For your first F1 win. What a, what a way to do it. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, so um, and as I say, I, I I did a separate list on the on the uh, top ten ugliest F one cars to win a Grand Prix, and I reckon that could, and the Cooper was on it. Uh, not not an attractive car, not particularly rapid, but um, yeah, it did the job on that day. We'll move on to number nine then, which is the uh, nineteen seventy Norris Ring two hundred, which uh, which sadly is actually a year before the same event, a year before where Pedro actually died, which is. Um, an interesting quirk of fate. Yeah, that's partly, I suppose, artistic license. Where I kind of wanted to include it really to cover off that kind of subplot to it. Um, but it's one of the races that when I was doing, I mean, whenever I start these lists, I've always got something, you know, a few races I immediately jot down as I'm going to have to look that up because they're probably going to be on the list. But this one came out completely from just doing the sort of general background research. And essentially, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was at Nuremberg, Nor- Norris Ring 200, and he was supposed to be driving an R17. But there was a, an engine shortage, and he ended up in a privateer 908, um, uh, which is a three-liter car against some some big stuff. The big, um, yeah. Well, there are a couple of actual normal sims there, so they're four and a half liters, um, and some Lola T70s, which in those in the interior races could run bigger engines. They they were restricted to five liters uh, in World Sports Car Championships, but they were. They were bigger. There was a 7.6-litre March 707 in it as well. So he was completely outgunned. Um, but he, uh, having shown a young Nicky Lauder around the track in practice, which I rather like um, as, a, as a little aside, he then proceeded to, yeah, he was easily the quickest of the 3-litre cars. He got stuck into the big stuff. Um, and when it rained briefly, he actually grabbed the lead. Um, I think in the first heat, it was a two-heat race. Uh, and he ended up, um, yeah, by just getting stuck in in both races, he ended up finishing third overall in a in a little three liter nine oh eight, which on that sort of track as well was I think a pretty remarkable yeah remarkable performance. And there aren't many examples of him in smaller smaller cars. You know, he's known as a kind of a big yeah nine one seven is the car you think of when you associate when you, when you think of Pedro Rodriguez. So I thought it was just a nice one to have in there to show that he could you know he could sort of take on the big guns when he had a smaller weapon as well. It's always a, a good barometer to, to see how good a driver is, to see how he goes in, in, in inferior machinery, isn't it? So I guess this really shows just why he was revered so much. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, I think that race probably would be would be less famous. I, I imagine people won't be so familiar with that, which is another reason why I like to, like to throw in some of these unusual ones. But um, yeah, I guess it's another example of these kind of battling, this is what I've got, I'm getting on with it. So number eight, then we uh, we head to the BRDC International uh, Trophy in 1971 at Silverstone. 
Yeah, so this is a weekend. This is one of those classic weekends where he was flitting backwards and forwards between events. So he was doing the F1 race at Silverstone uh, and going backwards and forwards to Spa for the 1,000 kilometres, which is the race I mentioned earlier that they won at, he won with Oliver at 154.8 uh, miles an hour. Um, so, in, so that meant he missed the best of qualifying. Um, and he, so he had to start, yeah, he has to start 10th and he just charged forward. Um, and he had a good fight with Graham Hill, who was probably having arguably his last great weekend in an F1 car, I would say. It was kind of like his Indian summer of his career, really. Um, uh, got, got ahead of him and finished second only to Jackie Stewart. In the second heat, um, he made a good start, was alongside Jackie, when Jackie had a, I think it was a throttle stick open by memory, uh, and crashed at Cops. It's actually quite a, it's quite a nice, there's footage of it, and it's, yeah, it's quite obviously not a driver error, let's put it that way. Um, and uh, yeah, Pedro's in the lead and probably favourite to win at that point. But as I say, Graham Hill was having one of his one of his last great days and took the fight to him. Um, and then Pedro got a puncture, and that that brought him into the pits. Um, and and it, and he fought back. And in the end, on aggregate, he was he was fourth. So uh, not a great result, but but a race that showed he sort of charging through the field showed I think the potential that he and the and the P one sixty had at the start of nineteen seventy one. And I quite like the fact that he was travelling backwards and forwards to, to Spa as well. Yeah, that's incredible, isn't it? I mean, we do see some of that still today with, you know, some drivers tend to want to try and do as much as they can and try and do two events in one weekend. But back then, I guess it was kind of normal that that was sort of the case. Yeah, there probably was more of that going on. I mean, Mario Andretti used to rack up an awful lot of miles going backwards and forwards uh, to the States obviously trying when he was trying to do IndyCar races and... Uh, and F1, well, and sports cars. Um, so yeah, they were busy. I mean, they were they were obviously they were paid less in F1, and there were there were fewer F1 races. I mean, obviously, twenty three race calendar in twenty twenty one. You know, there used to be yeah ten to fifteen races a year in those days, or twelve to fifteen perhaps. Um, so they they did a lot of other you know a lot of other racing. Um, and as I say, some of the programs included both. You know, if you were a Ferrari driver, that was what Pedro wanted. Pedro wanted to be a Ferrari driver in F1 and in sports cars and the deal I think the deal was perhaps coming together in 72 there was a there's a suggestion that Enzo had finally had enough of being beaten by Pedro in the 917 um, and he wanted to put X with Pedro I mean that would have been um, funny enough John Y wanted to do exactly the same in for 1970 he wanted uh, Rodriguez and X in the 917 but X signed for Ferrari um, but an, I think an X Rodriguez combination we'd be talking about that as one of the great sports car combinations ever indeed and uh on that note we'll move we've moved to sports cars actually with the number seven which is the 1968 Le Mans 24 hour which uh, was a, a victory for you for Mr Pedro there yeah well he actually I don't often put a race in the list that the driver in question describes as boring um uh, I mean obviously in those days the 24 hours you had to look after the kit really and you had to sort of, and John Y ran a pretty tight ship at JWA, and, and they had sort of allotted times that they were to do, and uh, in lots of races. But he was brought in at last minute. Why um, were having a really good season uh, against Porsche? Porsche are throwing huge amounts of resources and cars at the championship, <laughs> and JWA had I think three GT40s, uh, and they'd only run two at a time. But they had. Heading into Le Mans, if you remember, 1968 was the year that Le Mans was delayed um, until September. And uh, Brian Redman and Jackie X had both, who, who were their two kind of lead drives, if you like, uh, both had accidents 
uh, Formula One accidents and were out of commission. So um, Rodriguez was brought in to share one of the cars with Lucian Bianchi. And uh, I mean, he was the quickest GT40 driver, but he didn't need feel the need to prove it early on. He just ran a sensible race. He ran the race that Wire needed him to run. Um, and I think the race is significant, not just because it's the Le Mans 24 hours, and obviously winning Le Mans is always going to be a highlight on someone's CV. I think it's also important that it, it convinces Wire and the team that he's somebody, he, he keeps them on their, their radar. You know, he's a quick guy. It rained a lot that uh, in that race. Safe pair of hands, didn't do anything silly, quick when he needed to be. So, yeah, he thought it was boring, but I think it's a performance that was quite important for, for his future career. They did win by five laps, though, so that's a fair, fairly big margin. Yeah, I mean, the, to be fair, the, the Porsches fell to pieces. Uh, they were the other quick cars. The Porsches fell to pieces. I think Brian Muir beached one of the other GT40s uh, early on. That, and he did the opposite. He came in and just went, right, well, I'm going to charge off and, and then put the car in the sandbank, which didn't go down very well, as you can probably imagine. Uh, and the second, I think the other GT40 had an engine failure in the end. So I think probably by half distance, certainly by Sunday morning, they were just, you know, they, they didn't really have a threat. They just had to make sure the car kept going. So not the sort of race Pedro liked. You very much get the impression that he quite liked to have someone to chase uh, and someone to charge after. So, but he showed that he had the, the sort of mental control, if you like. It's like, well, I can do the, I can do that job as well. Um, you know, in his early days, I think there was some criticism that the Rodriguez brothers charged a bit and were car breakers sometimes. But I just don't think that that's the case. I think certainly by the late sixties, Pedro was very good at at looking after the cars that he had. And that only makes number seven, right? Which is <laughs> just, it just sort of just goes to show how good these drives were. But uh, number six is the 1968 Race of Champions at a place that I love, Brands Hatch. Yeah, another non-championship F1 race. Um, and this, this one in uh, BRM P133, which wasn't BRM's finest, wasn't, wasn't, its, wasn't its worst car either. It was at least the V12, not, not with the H16 engine. Uh, he missed that, fortunately. Um, but he did need a plug change on the car, which meant he had to start from the back of the field anyway. Um, so we're into... We're into nothing to lose. I'm going to charge territory. And okay, it wasn't the biggest field, but it was decent. And the fact that he caught and passed Jackie Stewart's Matra is one of the reasons why. One of the reasons why this makes the list. Um, and apparently Stewart then had a problem, came in, came out just ahead of Pedro. And Pedro was very irritated that he had to pass him again. <laughs> so he passed Stewart twice in one race. Um, and I think it was clear that that day the, the, new, the new McLaren M7A was the car to have. Um, and he beat one of them. He beat, he beat Denny Holm. Bruce McLaren won the race. Uh, and in this unfancied BRM from the back of the grid, he finished second. So I reckon that, that's got to be worthy of, of anyone's list, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That's not, that's not a bad uh, driver. No, it's not the win, but still, that's an incredible uh, comeback, isn't it? Um, moving on to number five, then, is the 1970 Monza 1000 kilometres. Yeah, I like this one because this is... So, obviously, with history, we now know that the 917 and Porsche did blow Ferrari into the weeds in 1970, but this is quite early on in the season. Coming into Monza, Porsche had won Daytona, Ferrari had won Sebring. Round three, we'll get to later on this list, but I would say it's fair... It, I think it's fair to say that it wasn't won by the car, it was won by the driver that day. <laughs> So you get to round four and Ferrari, home, home, home race, they throw, they throw their three cars at it 
Um, and uh, the five one two at that stage is five litre car. The nine one seven still only had a four and a half, and obviously it's a power circuit. Um, and they had a full proper lineup of Ferrari drivers. And fairly rapidly, Rodriguez is left fighting a lone battle against the three Ferraris. Vic Elford is very quick in the 4.9 litre Narman 7, which John Wire decided he didn't want to run after practice. So there's a whole different story there about the tension between the two works Porsche teams. Um, but that, that car had a puncture, I think. Sifford's car had a problem. And basically, Rodriguez had to drive against the three Ferraris. They even started moving Chris Amon around as their lead Ferrari driver to try and catch him. Uh, Leo Kinnanen lost a bit of time when he was in the car so as would become a theme in 1970 Pedro did an awful lot of the driving you know it was kind of he did the maximum allowed by the regulations Leo would drive the car or whoever was his co-driver would drive the car for the the bit that made it legal and then Pedro got back in again so you had three three bigger engine Ferraris chasing him the whole time and the, but they never got to him they were never able to catch him so you know a big home ground win and, and he he said himself that, that that he'd had to drive basically flat out the whole way, which in those days, you wouldn't do that very often. Um, so to drive flat out for a thousand kilometres around Monza with Ferraris chasing you, I think that, that was that was quite a special drive. Very interesting to sort of get into his mind at that point, because obviously he's desperate to try and get a Ferrari deal, but he's absolutely smashing them to pieces at Monza. Like, how do you sort of, how did, how did he cope with that? I think he was just once he was in the car, I, I, you know, you, I'm going to win the race. It doesn't really matter who he's up against. And I guess maybe you'd say, well, if you keep beating Ferrari, eventually Ferrari's going to give you a job. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, there's not, there's not, yeah, you're not going to get Enzo Ferrari's attention much better than beating his cars at Monza, I would say. Um, but to be fair to, to Ferrari, I do think that they, Enzo was very aware of Pedro's talents and, they just couldn't quite get, for one reason or another, they never quite got the deals. You know, he had driven in their sports car in 69. He did do one or two drives in the F1 car, but um, it just they just hadn't ever got to the point of getting a proper deal done. Um, and it was on the table again for 72. Um, yeah, so it's one of those, it's one of those little, uh, one of those little ironies of his career, it's true. And uh, moving on to, to number four, the 1971 Dutch Grand Prix. So another race against the Ferrari. <laughs> um, so yeah, so in, in, I, I'm fairly convinced that in that uh, yeah late sixties, early seventies, there were three clear wet weather drivers, um, and they were Jackie Stewart, Jackie Ix, and Pedro Rodriguez. Uh, Jean Pierre Beltoise was good as well, but I think they were the three consistently good performers whenever it rained. Quite often, Stewart was on different tyres to the other two, so it would, the win would tend to go to whichever side of that equation was, was better on the day. But at the 1971 Dutch Grand Prix, we had a very rare, if you look through F1 history, wet weather races tend to be dominated by a driver who's just having that day, goes down in history as a great wet weather drive. This is a rare occasion where I think you get two of them doing it at the same time. And they absolutely leave the rest of the field behind. So after, I think, five laps, Ix and Rodriguez are 18 seconds clear of the field. <laughs> Um, which is which is ridiculous. It's not like Zandvoort was a hugely long circuit. We're not talking the Nordschleife, and they just completely thrashed the field. Yeah, the Firestones were things to have, but yeah, Joseph Rodriguez's teammate who wasn't wasn't a slouch was two seconds a lap slower. Regazzoni and the other Ferrari had nothing for them, and they just put on a fantastic duel, swapping places um, as it dried and and got wet again. The, the advantage went backwards and forwards. Um, 
uh, sometimes they change on successive laps. It must have been amazing to watch. You know, the the Allsport report. I would uh, anyone that's got a, got the issue or or, or um, wants to find out more should definitely dig it out. It was uh, it, it comes across as a really fantastic race, and in the end, Ix's car appears to have a um, better traction. There's a suggestion that BRM was a little bit fluffing at low low revs, um, so Pedro had to keep the engine on the boil a bit more. But towards the end, there's quite a lot of oil downs, a bit more rain. And again, Pedro just didn't care. He just carried on anyway. Ix kind of was a bit more conservative. And Rodriguez started coming back at him again. And in the end, it fell up, I think, eight seconds short in the end. Um, so I just thought it was fantastic to have a, a race where you've got two of the all-time wet weather greats actually in an equal situation. They were almost identical lap times in the dry. They were really close in the wet. Just a proper duel between you know, two mega drivers, really. I was just trying to think of the last time that's actually happened in the sort of current day, but it's, it's escaping me at the moment. But uh... the the one I'd enjoyed was the Chinese Grand Prix in twenty ten, I want to say, with Jensen Button, Lewis Hamilton, teammates at McLaren. That was quite good because I think they're both two wet weather. I mean, they're both high. Lewis is second in the list of all time F one wet weather wet weather winners, and I think Jensen is fourth or fifth. So you know, two two again two F one wet weather stars going at it. But yeah, there are very few examples of, uh, of that sort of race. And in at number three is the 1970 Belgian Grand Prix, which is actually uh, his last F1 win. Yes. Um, I mean, it shouldn't have been. Um, I think it should have been the first of, of, of a few at uh, BRM, really. But the, the, the P153 was a, was a good car. It was a modern car, which BRM had really lacked. Um, and Tony Southgate was part of a, a kind of a, a new broom, if you like, at the end of '69. Designed a, you know, a, not a radical but a good, sensible car. What he didn't appreciate was that the V12 was not the most. It needed oil, so he uh, needed as much oil through it as possible. But he he took a few rounds to realise that, and they lost they lost a few points to unreliability. And for Spa, he was telling me when I spoke to him about it, they put an absolutely enormous oil tank on the back of the car. It was something huge uh, to just pump as much oil through the engine as possible. And he said, lo and behold, the thing held together. Um, and uh, yeah, he just picks off, he picks off all the, moves again, qualifying, not no great shakes, but I think he's in the lead by the end of lap five, but because um, uh, he was fantastic at Spa, the car was working, but he couldn't shake off Chris Amon in the march. And, uh, you know, we've talked about Amon, you know, he's... Uh, He's one of the best drivers not to win a World Championship Grand Prix. Uh, and obviously he really wanted it. And they were together pretty much the whole race. So it showed Pedro could withstand pressure. And there was quite a nice, um, when Nigel Roebuck interviewed Chris Amon a few years ago, there's quite a nice line about, yeah, Amon knew that he could get past if Pedro just made a mistake, but it just never came. Um, he said we were driving flat out for the whole distance. Um, you know, it's a track that we both love. You can really tell in his words that he's a huge amount of respect for Pedro. Um, and I think over the years there's been a bit of uh, there's been the odd suggestion that that BRM engine was big for that weekend. I don't think that's the case. I think it was Southgate's solution to the reliability problem, a track that's just probably suited the V12 and that Pedro was always amazing at. Um, so yeah, had to be on there. It's an interesting point you actually raised there. But we haven't actually covered is that he wasn't a big fan of qualifying, was he, Pedro? So it, it kind of adds to the tale that he just loves just battling through the field, whatever. Well, so yeah, one thing I wasn't able to include in the piece, but Tony Southgate did say to me is that 
he couldn't remember where it was, but he said that he'd come in during a practice session, Pedro, and he's qualified second. He was like only a couple of tenths off the pole. And uh, uh, and Pedro said, yeah, you're going to go out and find a bit more. No, no, that's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. We'll get him tomorrow sort of thing. And he, he said on one occasion, he'd just say to him, I will pass them all on the first lap. <laughs> <laughs> so he had to, just had that attitude that I'm, I'm kind of close enough. And of course, this is in the days before, I mean, unless you were at Monaco, yeah, this is they're in the days where you could normally overtake. Um, so he just that, that yeah, he, he would just it's quite often that he wouldn't he wouldn't clearly drive flat chat in qualifying. Yeah, he'd make sure that he was in the ballpark, um, and then he'd do the business in the race. And also, that win was the first of BRM for four years, so quite a breakthrough moment for them. Yeah, I mean, a piece I'm working on for later in the year, actually, um, it's another reason why it was so good to speak to, to Tony Southgate, was that's the last hurrah, really. 1970-71, with Tony Southgate designing the cars, they had some really good drivers um, in the cars during that time. Uh, and, yeah, they, they won races, probably should or could have won more. It was the last, it was the last hurrah before BRM started the decline that, that from which it never recovered. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a separate story there as well, which I'll do sometime. Okay, well I think you've I actually think you've nailed this top three, but this uh, they just hit, <laughs> they just keep getting better. The number two is the 1971 Osterreich 1000, which is just remarkable. So this is what the, the, there this was the only real contender for the number one spot, um, other than what we'll get to in a minute. Um, I'll explain why I didn't pick it uh, later on. But so John Y, the boss of, of the of the Porsche team, the golf team, he picked this as Pedro's greatest drive. So um, it's the fast airstrike ring. So um, yes, it's kind of where the Red Bull ring is now. But just think faster, bigger, and much faster. Um, and to start with, it was a fairly yeah. I think by that time, Pedro and the 917 would just a perfect combination, really. A, and he did qualify on pole, so that shows you how good the car was around there, and he was around there, uh, and he just took off at the start and, and disappeared down the road. It was all, it was all under control, uh, look, looking easy, uh, and then he had a, a, a flat battery caused by a, an alternator driving belt going going slack, and it lost him five and a half minutes, and he dropped us more than two laps behind in seventh, and he just started this incredible charge where he's lapping consistently three to four seconds a lap faster than the opposition, including uh, Clay Regazzoni in the 312P Ferrari, which is a special car itself. Uh, obviously, it was outgunned in terms of, yeah, in terms of power. Um, Jackie X could sort of stem a lot of the time loss, but, but yeah, Pedro was only going one way, and that was through the field. He handed over to Richard Atwood, who was sharing the car with that day, who did the minimum amount of laps and was a yeah, you know, was a couple of seconds couple of seconds off Pedro's pace, but he just did the job of keeping the car in that position. Pedro had a quick rest. Although I imagine Pedro having a rest is basically him looking at the pit wall, looking at the lap times until the car comes back in. I very much doubt he went out of a nap somewhere. Uh, and then he jumped back in the car and he he caught Regazzoni to unlap himself. Um, and uh, uh, with about 30 laps to go uh, and it was really nip and tuck as to how whether he was going to get there or not it was going to be this absolutely fantastic finish um, and and even uh, you know the, the accounts as to, I think if you're a Ferrari fan you reckon the Friday held on and if you were a Porsche fan you just said no I reckon he's going to get him uh, but then depending on which account you kind of go by Regat's only basically trying to hang on to Pedro as he disappeared down the road to try and make the lap up 
crashed. Um, yeah, he claimed that it was a, a car failure. I don't know if that was ever really confirmed, but um, but either way, it kind of finished Pedro's charge and handed him victory. And one of the things I really like about it is that Pedro was quite upset about that. Um, yeah, he said, I, I, I was really sorry when I saw Regazzoni off the road. I wanted to pass him once more. So it's another example of that. I just want to pass the car. <laughs> you know, he didn't really want to pass a wreckage by the side of the road to take the lead. He wanted the joy of coming around and getting him again. Um, which he may well have done. So, yeah, it must have been an epic, epic charge, you know, solo solo effort, really. A couple of things I like about this one is, firstly, he drove 157 of the 170 laps, which is remarkable. And secondly, the fastest lap was a second faster than the F1 fastest lap. <laughs> yes, yeah, I mean, the, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the 917 was a was an awesome piece of kit and you know Vic Elford said that he reckoned there were probably only three or four drivers in the world capable of driving it to its maximum at the time and obviously I'd say Pedro was the number one of those yeah I think he he and the 917 is one of one of motorsports great combinations Uh, and technically perhaps that was the best drive that he ever put in so it might be his best drive but I don't think it's his greatest drive and that leaves us with the uh, the number one, which you've picked as the Brands Hatch 1000 kilometer. Now explain why. Well, I mean, first of all, it's a much more competitive field than the 71 Nurstrike Ring Race. Um, it's got multiple Narmon Works Narmon Seven entries. It's got a full factory Ferrari team as opposed to just one three one two. Um, yeah, there are two two five one two S's which qualify ahead of the Narmon Sevens in the dry. There are several three-liter, quick three-liter cars in there, which round brands probably more sensible rivals than uh, somewhere like the Earthstrike Ring, where they're just going to get out outpowered, really. Um, so yeah, I'll just read some of the other drivers who are in that field. You know, Chris Amon, Jack Brabham, Vic Elford, Denny Holm, Jackie X, Jackie Oliver, Brian Redman, and Joe Siffert. And history records that it, he made them all look completely ordinary. So. It was absolutely tipping it down. It's one of those races where, you know, would they start it now? I don't know. Um, and there was an accident. One of the drivers at the back of the field very optimistically started on slicks and inevitably crashed. Um, I mean, that was a mind-boggling decision up there with uh, Williams' 97 Monaco Grand Prix uh, effort. And uh, uh, and he, there was so much spray. Pedro overtook cars under yellows, got called in, was very much... Uh, told off by Nick Serrett, the uh, clerk of the course, um, who ended up thumping on his helmet. Don't do that again! Um, Pedro apparently just, because Simon Taylor was there in the pit lane, he said uh, Pedro didn't even look up, he just looked steel, straight ahead out the window. Uh, and then once once he'd had his ticking off, he just laid two enormous black lines of rubber all the way down the pit lane as he went back out. And he went back out almost a lap down, and he just proceeded to charge past everyone. Um including Siffert, Elford, Chris Amon, you know, proper drivers. The only driver that might have been able to give him something to think about in those conditions, Ix had, uh, of all things, windscreen wiper problems. I think perhaps Ferrari build quality wasn't quite on level with Porsche at that point. Um, and he just sailed past it. And there's some footage. Um, Golf did a, a, a film called A Year to Remember. And I would, again, I'd recommend people find it because it's absolutely super. It's dancing. It is a car dancing on a... Uh, on an appallingly wet track you know these cars had at that point five five fifty to five eighty brake horsepower not the most suitable car in those conditions i would say 
he was brought in. He gave Leo Kinnanen again the minimum amount of time. Sat nervously on the pit wall. I think by the time so he was a lap behind when he came out. He was two laps ahead by the time he brought the car in. Kinnanen went out, had a spin. I think brought the car in after the minimum amount of time. Pedro went back out again and just carried on. And in the end, he crossed the line to win by five laps. So for my money, I think it's one of the greatest wet weather drives by anyone in any car, in any category, irrespective of F1 or sports cars. I just think that's an incredible performance. And everyone that was there, drivers, journalists, spectators, and I've had the good fortune to speak to someone from all of those categories, um, just, just in awe of the performance. And it absolutely established him as one of the top drivers in the world. There can be no, <laughs> no question marks about this. This shows exactly why... He was the greatest uh, from from Mexico, one of the greatest wet weather drivers ever. I mean, this is this just sort of en- encapsulates everything that's good about Pedro Rodriguez in terms of his ability in the wet, the, this never say die attitude. It's just it's just remarkable. No, you're absolutely right. That's a very good way of putting. It. And of course, in the car that we all associate him with, I think you know, I think if you think, okay, I know I'm biased because I'm a big Nine One Seven fan, but I think if you think Pedro Rodriguez, you think golf liveried, you know, blue powder, blue orange Nine One Seven on it and uh and, and I just think that was his that that was his day of days I mean other drivers I think it was uh you know Richard Atwood said uh, he doesn't care who else had been in the car it could have been Jim Clark Fangio Moss anyone you could think of wouldn't have been quicker than than Pedro on that car in that day on that day um and certainly the mate the way that he made a really top class international field look look ordinary. I know Nigel Roebuck, you know, obviously a long-term F1 reporter, he he still writes about and talks about that race. He was spectating that day. And um, yeah, it's just it's just a race that really stands out in everyone's mind. You know, when we did the All Sports 70 um, celebrations last year, we did a, a list of the great sports car drives and that, and that, that, and that just has to be on it. Like for me, that's, that's right up there. In, in any list, not just Pedro's driving, I think wet weather driving, sports car driving, it's one of those great, great drives. Moving on to his, his legacy, do you think do you think he gets enough credit for how good he was? I mean, it seems as though perhaps not. No, I don't think he does in the wider motorsport world. I think um, in Mexico the legacy is strong. You know, they, they don't. You know, I think in Britain we kind of sometimes get, take it for granted that we've got multiple Grand Prix winners. We've got loads of world championships. You know, we've been a motorsport powerhouse, if you like, since the, since the late nineteen fifties. But, um, but you know, the other countries that don't have that, you know, when someone does come along, you know, that it really gets the sort of national fervour. You know, so there were presidential candidates in Mexico who wanted to be associated with the Rodriguez brothers because they were, they were sort of flying the flag abroad. Um, so I think in Mexico, you know, the legacy's there. You know, Sergio Perez has talked about, about um, you know, the Rodriguez because it's it's such a you know there's two there's two Mexican Grand Prix winners it's Sergio and Pedro you know so I think it, it over in Mexico they you know and this the 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 authors and the producers of this book I mentioned uh, they've actually got sort of a charitable organisation to promote uh, and and remember the Rodriguez brothers in Mexico and sort of make sure their memory is kept alive so I think in Mexico they they're sort of still legends. And, uh, and of course, the Mexican Grand Prix venue is named after them. I think in the wider context, yes, I think you're right. I think that he, he tends, because maybe his time at the top was relatively short. I think he was coming into his, I think he was at his peak when he was killed. Um, and maybe because he wasn't one of those known to socialise. So it's not like you've got lots of crazy stories about him that come up that, um, you know, that people talk about. 
but I, I, I think he was in the top three or four drivers of his era. And I'd say that that was an era that wasn't exactly lacking in good drivers. So absolutely, I think he probably deserves more recognition. I'll admit to a bit of a personal bias in that it just sounds a bit strange given that um, he was killed a decade before I was born. But one of the things that got me into motorsport was reading late 60s and early 1970s autosports and motorsport magazine, uh, and particularly the sports car races. And his name and what he did, like that Brands race, just really captured my imagination. So I've always had a kind of a sort of soft spot for Pedro Rodriguez, even though I never had the chance to, to, to meet him or watch him drive. And, and speaking to people that did work with him and, and did race against him has only enhanced that over the last few weeks that I've been working on this. So yes, he should he should get credit. And, and hopefully, hopefully this list of um, races and this podcast will just give people that are familiar with him, you know, something to sort of remember, you know, jog some memories and people that aren't, maybe, you know, go and go and dig in into it a bit more and, and find out what um, what he was really like. Well, I think that's a very, very nice way to, to end this. And um, yeah, if you do, please go and buy the latest issue of Autosport to uh, to read Kevin's feature because it's, a, it's an absolutely brilliant read. And uh, hopefully this podcast uh, sort of uh, can uh, illustrate that a little bit more. But um, yeah, thanks again, Kevin, for joining us on the Autosport podcast. Thanks very much. Well, thank you, Tom, and thank you, Kev, for another brilliant podcast that goes alongside the current edition of Autosport magazine. Pick it up on the shelves, or you can subscribe to that as well, so it comes straight to your door every week on a Thursday. And if you'd like to sign up for Autosport Plus, it's our very special subscriber area of the website, and we think it's the world's greatest motorsport writing. But judge for yourself, you can have a look on there at the moment. Kevin Turner is writing about why Formula One's pole records could be about to become meaningless. The small changes behind Lando Norris's rise to F1 stardom by our sister publication GP Racing, and our man Jonathan Noble writes why the F1 title-winning Alonso is back both on and off the track. If you want to become a new subscriber today, you can do that and use the promo code PODCAST during checkout. Then you save 50% off your first payment, whether you sign up for a month or a year. So go to autosport.com slash plus then look at the top of the page you'll see sign in click on that and when it asks for a promo code write podcast and you get a very exclusive 50 percent discount only for people who listen to this show thank you for listening and we'll be back soon the world is waiting waiting for new thinking for bold ideas that embrace a globally connected community, working together to create a better future for all. And that future, it can be found here at UC Riverside. Here, you'll join a community where diversity equals vitality, where support and empowerment lifts spirits and propels ideas forward. Fearless, innovative, connected. UC Riverside. Bold hearts, brilliant minds. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.